Welcome to the Experience Ed podcast. I am Jim Steller. I am Mary Churchill. And I'm Adrian Dooley. We bring you this podcast on experiential education with educators and thought leaders from around the country and the world. We have with us today, Dr. Michael Sharp. For 11 years, Dr. Sharp has been leading service learning at the University of Cincinnati program that connects stakeholders who support over 4,000 student registrations per year, representing every undergraduate college at UC. Most recently, and in response to COVID-19, he helped to create the Service Learning Co-op Program, providing students with paid opportunities to work virtually with not-for-profit organizations. Sharp is an associate professor of experiential learning, teaching classes in the Division of Experience-Based Learning and Career Education in the College of Arts and Sciences Communications Department. Sharp created and is leading a novel approach to service learning called the Service Learning Collaboratory, a class that was recognized via the Dean's Award for Innovative Instruction. He's the co-creator and co-host of the Tapioca Radio Show and has introduced to the university Jack Twineman Award for Service Learning. Sharp is the senior editor of Experience Magazine, Practice Plus Theory Plus Podcast, and has earned a doctorate in urban education leadership at the University of Cincinnati. His dissertation, Critical Curriculum and Just Community, colon, Making Sense of Service Learning in Cincinnati, focused on the importance of critical pedagogy created through campus community partnerships. It was awarded the Dissertation of the Year by the National Society for Experiential Education. This award-winning work has been con contracted for publication by UC Press. Some of Sharp's service to his community includes coaching baseball, Cincinnati Freedom, and volunteering. He also co-chairs the Greater Cincinnati Service Learning Network's Higher Education Committee. Michael, uh, thank you for being with us. Um, we see that you have a long history with experiential education, but let's focus first on the magazine you lead. How long have you been the editor and, and how did you get into that position? Well, uh, thank you, Jim, and thank you, Mary, for inviting me on to your uh, podcast. I've been looking forward to this, and um, it's a real pleasure to uh, talk with you both here. Uh, I've been uh, editor of Experience Magazine uh, since right around 2017. The, the publication existed well before me. Very good friend and colleague of mine, Professor Michelle Clare, was the editor prior to me. Uh, uh, and then between like 2015 and 2017, the magazine went sort of dormant. Uh, prior to that, it was really focused exclusively on cooperative education and internships. And so when I was approached to maybe think about uh, relaunching it, because in my, my world, I, I don't do very much co-op and internship type stuff. I do more service learning type stuff. Um, I proposed to the uh, board of CEIA, which is the organization that publishes the magazine, um, ask them, would it be okay if we brought in the focus of uh, the magazine to include other types of experiential learning and work integrated learning programming like service learning, like transdisciplinary or interdisciplinary teaching and learning, undergraduate research, teaching practicums, exhibitions, performances. 
and the board said said uh, yes. And so in 2017, we uh, launched our first issue. I believe it was the fall of uh, 2017, and we've we've done about two issues per year uh, since. That's great. You got into the editor position, just to follow up a little bit, um, because there was a natural turnover. Um, is there anything more to the story? I mean, were you uh, hankering to broaden the magazine, as you said? Well, uh, you know, it's really interesting. I did know about the magazine because the service learning program at the University of Cincinnati had moved from a sort of satellite office um, reporting to the provost office, and it moved over to the division of what was then called Division of Professional Practice, which was the place that did co-op and internships. And so uh, that's when I became exposed to that side of the experiential learning or will umbrella. And Michelle Clare uh, was then, and is still a colleague in that uh, unit. And I became very familiar with it then. We even uh, talked a little bit prior to me taking it over about could we encourage service learning faculty and students to also uh, submit content. Um, but then through a series of changes and sort of Michelle switched gears and became uh, more of a leader in our unit so she had to let some things go and it sort of died out for a while and I think you both know uh, Professor Cheryl Cates who's now retired. Uh, I do. But uh, it was actually Cheryl's idea and then president of CEIA, Kelly Harper. I remember having pizza, uh, I forget the name of the pizza joint, but we had a little meeting and talked about what it would look like if I took it over. And so I, I really, to be honest with you, sort of fell into it. Um, and I just said yes. And so now here we are three years later and I'm continuing to do it. I have to just interject that so many good things happen in the academy over pizza. Isn't that true? Isn't that so true? Coffee and cookies <laughs> may be a close second. And then maybe beer is a fourth. Absolutely. Maybe. Jim and I have had some great slices of pizza at Queens. Okay. <laughs> So I, you've told us a little about how the magazine operates. Could you tell us a bit more? But also, I'd love to hear some of the more interesting stories you've encountered uh, through this magazine. Yeah. Um, so one big change that I wanted to uh, talk about here, and the uh, timing of you allowing me to come on your podcast here is perfect. So when I, I relaunched it, it used to be called just Experience Magazine. And so when I relaunched it in 2017, we added the tagline, uh, practice and theory. Um, and then with this most recent um, um, launching, if you look at the website today and compare it to the website of six months ago, it's quite, quite different. And what we've done is we've added also uh, a pod podcasting functionality. Um, a person that I think, Jim, you know for sure, Mary, you may know as well, Eric Allenson, he's a professor at UC. Uh, he and I about, I don't know, four or five years ago started basically a radio show out of UC's radio station and we called the Tapioca Radio Show and it was sort of a hobby where we just invited in people like you and students and not-for-profit partners and co-op employers and we interviewed them just sort of like we're doing here. And then Eric and his wife, Erin Allenson, who also works at UC, had a couple of kids and so that sort of fell off the radar. 
And so what we've done is we've sort of taken that Tapioca radio show model platform and we've moved it over to Experience Magazine. We were really surprised the amount of attention we were getting with uh, Tapioca radio show. I think we did, you know, 30 or 35 episodes and we somehow, without promoting it all, uh, promoting it at all, had about 20,000 page clicks. And we're really not sure why that's, that's happening uh, or why that did happen. But we were happy to see it. And so what we're hoping to do is to broaden that listenership of what used to be called the Tapioca Radio Show um, as we've moved it over to Experience Magazine. So with the new launch, there's a new name. It's called Experience Magazine Practice Theory and Podcast. And um, uh, thank you for having me on to talk about that. And uh, I, I asked this of uh, Jim prior to today's call. I would love to have you two on to our podcast sometime in the near future so you can talk about your work as well. Oh, that'd be fun. Um, fun, fun, yeah. fun. Yeah. yeah. Great. I'm in. So that that's one big change that you'll you'll see. And the other big change is with the old format of Experience Magazine, it was basically a twice per year publication. One came out in the fall, one came out in the spring, and that seemed to do okay. But the world's changed and people want content updated more frequently than that. So we've also moved to more of a rolling submission and rolling publication. So as, as we get new content in, or as we do a new podcast, or somebody writes a really cool article, or we, um, uh, somebody submits a really cool video of something, we will update the platform every two to three weeks or so to keep it current and to keep people uh, coming back. Cool. So what, what's a hot story? Like what, what's one that people have, uh, especially one that I guess that surprised you, people are clicking on and reading and listening to more than, than you might've thought they would. Yeah. Well, one, one story that I really like, um, it is titled, uh, uh, what you can learn from 2000 sticky notes using participatory action research to study women in engineering. So that is a mouthful. Very cool. It, it really highlights what we're trying to do with the platform, which is, uh, for example, action research is a form of work integrated learning or experiential learning, um, as is uh, co-op for engineers. And so what that article does a pretty good job of doing is intentionally blurring the boundaries that exist between those different buckets of experiential learning, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that, and that sounds like a fun topic. And I have a nice visual image of all these sticky notes, right? There's a great visual image with that. Yeah, yeah um, there's another article, uh, Cooperative Education and Entrepreneurship Education, which seems to be a topic that people are getting more and more excited about. Uh, what we've noticed in the not-for-profit sector is the old traditional model of existing solely on grants and solely on fundraisers. And uh, that seems to be fading away a little bit. And what's many of these not-for-profits, at least in Cincinnati, and I'm sure up north as well, are starting to do is more social entrepreneurship things where they will either provide a service or provide products. And then the proceeds of that, those services and products go back toward the not-for-profit mission. And so that's, I think, another example of really blurring the boundary between for-profit thinking, not-for-profit thinking, uh, the campus and the community, uh, 
And I really like that. And that's what we're really trying to do with this platform of Experience Magazine is to really embrace that and, and you know, create that fuzzy place where people can come and learn from each other. You know, if you're an expert in co-op and engineering, you may have something to learn from the service earning folks. And the opposite is true also. Yeah. And you know that, like, I'm just thinking as you say that, um, that really is a model of inter integration, right? Yes. We talk about interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary or transdisciplinary, but that's integration, what you're describing, which is fantastic. And it's often at those boundaries where the real learning takes place. My own field of neuroscience was the integration of psychology and biology, for example. Yeah. 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 And Jim, you know, we, we uh, talked about this and I would love to work with you around that. What, what we've talked about in the past, this idea of the mind and the heart link yeah. is a fascinating concept for me. And I would love to talk with you more about that. Well, I'm always happy to talk. I am a professor, you know, especially about that topic. But let me turn it back to you for a second. Mm -hmm. Because when you went to the University of Cincinnati, the famous mm -hmm. co-op school, the founding co-op school, although that makes Northeastern and Drexel a little bit heebie-jeebie, okay. uh, and they're almost as old as Cincinnati, you didn't do co-op. You started not. in service learning. So can you talk a little about, you, about your personal transition and how yeah. that worked? to lead you to where you are today? Yeah, so I, I graduated high school in 1992. and went straight to college. And like a lot of freshmen do, I did really well for, we were on quarters then, not semesters. I, I did really well for about a quarter. And then I found the uh, extracurricular side of college um, and not extracurricular in a positive way, the, the parties <laughs> and the clubs and the bars and the stuff like that. And there was a direct correlation between my grades and the amount of time that I spent in extracurriculars. And so Jim and uh, Mary both, I, I, I floundered. You know, at, at that time, they called us undecided students. What they call them now is exploring students or exploratory students. Uh, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I was sort of taking classes and not doing very well, wasn't engaged. And I took a class with a, uh, someone that has become a very good friend of mine, uh, Dr. MJ Westy. He taught a class called Intercultural Communication. And it, that was a service learning class before the university had any sort of formal adoption of a service learning program. And I had my first chance to get outside of the classroom and I went and worked with an organization here in Cincinnati called the Imago Earth Center and got to work with some kids and just you know, shovel around mulch and then reflect on that experience and write a paper. And then suddenly I became more interested in the theory and the content of the classes. Um, and so I took a couple of those and uh, had, meanwhile, had dropped out of college three or four times, was on academic probation a couple of times. Uh, it, I, I tell my students today that it took me about 10 years to get a bachelor's and that, that they should not do that. But it was, it was because I was sort of meandering and trying to figure out who I was. And it wasn't really until I had a chance to do an experiential learning class that I really thought, oh, I see the relevance of what they're trying to teach us here. Yep. Uh, and so, um, Jim, the, the way that I really got formally involved with service learning, um, I was in my doctoral program, uh, UC, um, Urban Educational Leadership, and I was a a graduate assistant for the dean 
and uh, had been adjuncting uh, throughout that time for the communication department where I got a master's from there as well as a bachelor's. And a colleague of mine over there who was still there, Steve Fuller, uh, called me and said, hey, did you see that job opening? And there was a, a grant funded position called uh, Director of Academic Community Partnerships. And I looked at the requirements, it was PhD preferred, which I didn't have one, but I just happened to have finished a class in my doctoral program that required us to do a CV and a letter of intent. And so I had all the materials ready to go. So I just submitted that stuff and several months later went to a few interviews and I ended up getting the job in 2008, which was a shocker to me. I didn't expect to, to be honest. That's great. That's a great story. So I, I just have to confess, um, I went to Michigan State in the late 80s, so I also went to a big party school. <laughs> so um, yeah. yeah, where before we really had uh, meaningful co-curriculars, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I also, I my first kind of experiential piece was uh, um, working on a research project, and Jim's heard me tell this story, but um, I think that's when for me, it really came together too that the classroom learning wasn't just some abstract learning, but it had real world application. And so um, it kind of saved me. I didn't take as long as you did for my undergrad, but I did take five years. I, I did go an extra year. So, um, but can you talk a little bit about how the experiential piece really affected your approach to your career? You talked about your career trajectory, but kind of the way you looked at the work um, after you had some experiential ed under your belt? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question, Mary. So I was, um, as I was finishing up my doctoral coursework and starting to write my pr prospectus, the adjunct courses that I was teaching over in the communication department, one of those courses was called persuasive speaking. So a lot of, you know, grad students teach those types of courses, effective public speaking or persuasive speaking. And I had been doing that for a couple of years and uh, getting paid a very little bit of money, but getting really good teaching experience. And in that class, um, this is again, back in the quarter system, you know, you have 25 students and the students have to deliver, I think, three or four speeches in the class throughout the semester. And I remember after teaching that for two or three years, dreading speech days, like dreading the days. And I, and I should mention that I was teaching like two of these sections back to back. So imagine having a whole week dedicated to listening to dozens of students give really crappy persuasive speeches. And I started thinking, well, why are they crappy? I'm, I'm teaching this content the best that I can, and the content is good. Um, I thought the textbook was good. It gives you all the things you need to know for how to do a really effective speech. But the students didn't care about what they were speaking about. All they were doing was doing an assignment. And students are smart, and they will do what they have to do to get the A. So that's when, um, and this I should mention is, is prior to me taking this job, um, uh, then called Academic Community Partnerships, um, somebody had sent around an email to all of the uh, part-time faculty at UC, and it was basically saying, hey, would you be interested in uh, working with a community partner um, 
partner with your class. And then I remembered back to my experiences as an undergraduate doing things like that, service learning things. And so um, it was then that I um, uh, partnered with an organization outside of the class and uh, gave these students the opportunity to get to know that partner, get to understand what their mission is, get to understand who uh, the organization's trying to serve, and then set those students loose on creating persuasive speeches that would benefit or on behalf of those not-for-profit partners. And guess what happened to the speeches? Fireworks. They, I can imagine. They, oh. it, was, it was night and day. And, and, and what was fascinating to me is that the, the content I was teaching was not different. The book wasn't different. The instructor wasn't different. What had changed was the purpose of the speech. Whereas before it was for a grade and now it was there's real people that you now know that will benefit from this speech. The speeches became amazing and I stopped dreading speech days. I started looking forward to what these students were going to be speaking about. And so that's really where I saw the magic of experiential learning and in this case, service learning. I think you've anticipated our next question. I'll just uh, put a little twist on it. Um, and that is that when we think of co-op, uh, often we think of it as a future focused on the job activity. Um, but what you've just discussed is more on the development of the person, the heart, if you will, of them. Uh, so could you just uh, contribute uh, 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 comment briefly on how that kind of experience like you just described really transforms a person and then makes them eligible for work or whatever comes next? Yeah, Jim, that's a great question also. I've, I've thought a lot about that question, uh, particularly in trying to make sense of, you know, service learning is one type of will or experiential learning, as is co-op, as is internship. Uh, but there's something different about it. There, there's something, and I don't know what the term is yet, but I think you maybe said it. It's more transformational. Not that co-op's not transformational. I'm not saying that. But co-op is almost a little bit, it leans toward the transactional, meaning students get an opportunity to work, make a little money, get some on-the-job training, and the purpose is to get a really good job, right? Yep. Where, where service learning's looser, it's a more... Um, the process is more organic and it's more about relationship building than it is the transaction of getting paid for a service and building your resume. Um, uh, I, but I've, I've thought a lot about that and it to me goes back to the core of a really good service earning project and I should mention it's hard to get it right. I've, I've gotten it wrong more times than, I, than, than not but it's focusing on the relationships between the stakeholders and what is mutually beneficial for all of them, not just for one of them. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know if that quite answered your question, Jim, but I think it has to do with, um, it's more transformational because it gets to, not to get overly cliche here, but it gets to the heart of the person and, you know, what I like to tell students when they ask me, well, why do I want to do this? I want to be a lawyer. or I want to work for Procter & Gamble. Well, we want you to be a lawyer and we want you to work for Procter & Gamble. 
and we want you to make a gazillion dollars so you can give some money back to the university, of course. Uh, but we also want you to have this experience or these experiences where you've had a heart change, where you understand that uh, maybe you've been privileged and there's people that aren't, and you have a you have a responsibility for your community. And there's a civic side to even if you're working in a very you know successful for-profit business, then you can still do things to lift those around you. Well, it's about citizenship in a sense, and certainly that's something that all colleges and universities want to generate in their student populations as good citizens. So I, if you will excuse the pun, wholeheartedly agree. <laughs> so, you know, Jim mentioned earlier that um, University of Cincinnati is a world leader in co-op education, experiential education. So, but that was where you went for your undergraduate degree, correct? I Right. So, so what is, um, what is it like to now be in the center of experiential ed? And I think a follow-up question to this or a part two is, can you view the world of higher ed without the co-op lens really? You know, I mean, my own experience at Northeastern, um, I'll talk about it after you <laughs> speak, but it's really, once you're immersed in it and you kind of grow up in it, um, it changes the way you look at higher ed. And I'm interested to see what you have to say about that. Yeah, well, <laughs> I don't know if I should admit this. Jim, Jim already knows this because I, I think I shared it with, with him. But, you know, I came to UC in 1992 and I really didn't even understand that UC was a co-op school until um, my position, which was a grant-funded position, moved over to the Division of Professional Practice, which was about 2011. And I had seen, I mean, there, there's a statue of uh, Herman Schneider, and I've walked past that statue a thousand times. He's the founder uh, of Co-op. Right, right. Well, I, I, I know that now, but I didn't know that. And, but it, it, it speaks to um, what I think UC is trying to overcome now, which is, we consider ourselves the co-op school, but up until recently with President Pinto's move toward what we're calling co-op 2.0, really all those co-op opportunities were for the College of Engineering, our design school and the College of Business. And so students like me that were at one time an ANS student, arts and sciences student, um, and then later on an education student, we didn't have those co-op opportunities. Um, now, we did have service learning opportunities and those sorts of things, um, um, but I didn't know, um, admittedly, what really co-op even was until I was a professional working at, at UC and had been doing that for a few years. Uh, the second part of your question, uh, question Mary, um, is it possible to view the academy or even the world without that lens? And I, I think... You know, it's, it's like turning on a light switch, right? And so once you understand the power of experiential learning, both as a student and as a faculty or as a practitioner of it, it would be hard for me to imagine teaching a class where it did not have some experiential learning component to it. Because I just believe it's a superior way to understand and retain knowledge. Yeah, that's really good. Go ahead, Mary. It's hard to, to take it away, right? You know, it's 
once you're immersed in that um, way of looking at the world, you you can't turn it off. At least that's what I've found. And so regardless of the discipline or the classroom experience, you're constantly pulling in real world examples or asking the students to talk about how they've experienced things at work or in life. And, and you just that interactivity and you don't find that at every institution. And so it is unique and it's, uh, it, it kind of adds a real, and Jim and I have talked about this before, entrepreneurial edge to almost everything you do. It's, it's right. just more innovative way of looking at what we do in higher ed. So thank you. That's great. Uh, so um, we're kind of coming near the end and uh, I'd like to uh, um, have maybe one of the last questions be not the last one necessarily. Um, how do you think experiential education in general applies to something that you wanted us to talk about, which is the modern world where we're all uh, uh, sort of uh, staying at home or at yeah. least um, doing a lot of work on Zoom? Um, do you have any thoughts about how we can do things like service learning and experiential learning and co-op even um, in, the, in the modern uh, world where it looks like this pandemic is going to be with us for a little while longer? Yeah, Jim, that's a fantastic question. And, you know, I've, I've spoken with other people about what I'm calling, I'm not the only one, but this uh, COVID-19 silver linings. Um, and one of those silver linings is, I mean, you, you know you see well enough that the co-op program is a, a pretty robust program. I forget how many people we have now, but it's 50 or 60 folks. And the vast majority of those folks are co-op folks, meaning they're charged with finding placements for students, advising those students, and they do a fantastic job. And so the service learning component of uh, the division, it's basically just me and I have sort of help, part-time help from one more uh, colleague. But what COVID-19 is, is, has, has forced to happen all over the world um, is that co-op employers have had to pull back offers. And so just, just that you see, we had just this summer, uh, 2,400 co-op placements that many of them were canceled and even the ones that weren't canceled had to move from being a face-to-face co-op opportunity to something virtual. And so suddenly what the service earning folks have been doing, uh, we have uh, started a program called the service earning co-op program. We, had some funding from a, a, a grant from the Ohio Department of Labor, where we were uh, providing students with a not-for-profit opportunity, a paid not-for-profit opportunity. Uh, but the good news for our partners is that we have the funding to pay the salary of a student, which is always an obstacle for a not-for-profit. They don't have the funding to hire a co-op student. And so we had started that program in August, and suddenly there's all these co-op students and parents calling the university um, desperate because they come to UC to co-op and suddenly they can't. And so one of the silver linings has, has been that my, my co-op faculty colleagues have started to learn and understand and appreciate what the service earning folks do. Um, as we all know, Jim and Mary, the, the world has changed drastically and uh, I think another silver lining here is that it's forcing us to come together in unique ways, like we are here with Zoom, uh, 
Um, but it's, it's forcing the campus and the community to come together in new ways also that, that we haven't thought about before. And I hope that even once we have a vaccine and we're through this, that there'll, there'll be a legacy of some of those new ways of doing and thinking. Um, so I, I hope that answered your question, Jim. I, I think I may have meandered away from it a little bit, but. I think it's spot on. Yeah, and I'm, I'm also hopeful about what I'm seeing is kind of forced flexibility, and I hope we have that flexibility going forward and, and appreciation for folks who teach online and how hard it is to teach online, right? And so in the best cases right now, I am seeing faculty really appreciate one another in ways they maybe haven't in the past and, and that flexibility. Um, so I get the last question of this conversation. Um, one, the kind of one for you to think of when I ask this is, is there anything else you wanted to say? But also, I'm really curious about the name Tapioca Radio and how you came up with that. Is there a story behind that? There, there, abs there absolutely is. So the reason for the name Tapioca Radio Show, and, and I should mention that I had the idea to do that radio show, but didn't have the technical capability. I even went over to Bearcast Media and got trained, but was so overwhelmed by the switchboards and the whole system that it freaked, freaked me out. And it wasn't until I met Eric Allenson, who does part-time, he, he does sports broadcasting for ES, ESPN, ESPNU, that I was able to do it. But the, um, the, the place the Tapioca Radio Show name comes from is that I was sitting in my office with a colleague who is retired, no longer at, at UC. Um, and we were sort of thinking through a service learning lens and drawing on a whiteboard. And we were trying to come up with this idea of how could we thematically group not-for-profit missions in a collective impact way. Meaning that if there's these 10 not-for-profits in Cincinnati that are trying to work on uh, educational inequity or trying to work on healthcare disparity or trying to work on hunger issues or homelessness issues, how could we create a class or create a platform to get them working together? And so if you could imagine a whiteboard and people are writing on it and we would draw these little like circles with the name of the not-for-profit and then try to move them around. I think we had some sticky notes or stickers on, on there too. And then started drawing circles around these smaller circles. And at some point, um, my uh, colleague who I was with said, you know, that reminds me of tapioca pudding. <laughs> you know, because there's like the pudding part, but what makes tapioca pudding delicious is like the little, I don't even know what they call them, like the little things in there, the little... Little bubbles. Yeah, yes, yes. And so... Uh, the the reason we called Tapioca Radio Show the Tapioca Radio Show is that we're we our idea was to um, uh, focus on the bubbles, um, but not lose sight of what the bubbles are in. Meaning that we're all in this realm of experiential education or campus community engagement, experiential learning, uh, and so that's sort of where the name comes comes from. Um, I I'm part of me's sad that we're losing that sort of name because I like it, but you know, it's probably the best thing to do because nobody knows what it means. Well, we're now just, we do. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great metaphor though. Yeah. I would, you know, and another conversation, I would love to talk to you more about 
what you've done in Cincinnati. I am an associate dean in a school of ed and at BU, and I am trying to do something similar with Boston. I'm the lead liaison with Boston Public Schools, and during COVID-19, uh, the community-based organizations have really been doing the heavy lifting for BPS, and I am trying desperately to um, figure out how to bring disparate groups together in what it sounds like you did, which is, so I'm very interested. Thank you for telling that story. <laughs> yeah, that was great. We'll have to do some tapioca making, Mary. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I am making tapioca, but I just haven't called it tapioca. <laughs> right, well, if we do use that word, we got to credit Michael. Definitely. Well, I didn't come up with the name tapioca pudding, so you guys can have, have at it, but there's nothing that I love talking about more, Mary and Jim both, and connecting the campus to the community. So if you ever want to just chat offline, um, great. I think we have a big responsibility here. You know, one of the biggest criticisms of higher ed is that we have these pressing problems, global problems, and who's supposed to be addressing them? And my, my thinking is, is that it's not all the responsibility of higher ed, but we can be doing a better job. And we have a team of people, the students want to do this anyway. Michael, this has been great. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you. And promise me both that you'll come on the Experience Magazine podcast as well. We'd love to talk with you and hear more about your work individually, um, uh, professional work, but also the work that you're doing with Experience ED. Oh, we wonderful. will be happy to. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you will come back soon for the next installation of Experience Ed. As we continue to talk about the neuroscience and sociology of enhancing higher education. By combining direct experience with classical academic learning.